that land because I'm faithful to every one of my promises, but I'm not going to go with you because you've clearly chosen to worship other gods. And in this conversation, Moses says, no, 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 that cannot be the case. Like, this is everything we've been dreaming towards, but your, your presence is everything to us. It is what distinguishes us from the rest of the people on the face of the earth. So I'd rather be in the wilderness, this harsh terrain where life just feels fragile. I'd rather be here with the nearness of your presence than be in the promised land without it. That's a huge, huge statement. Now, again, I just want to compare it to the cultural moment we find ourselves in. We idolize progress It's the mantra of the kind of enlightenment era, the myth of human progress. It's it's one of the foundations of secular humanism, this idea that we will progress towards some sort of utopian vision. We, We keep getting closer. We keep getting closer, but do we actually get closer? Like, I wonder if people decades, centuries back would look at this cultural moment, all the technology that we have, all the scientific advance, and be like, wow, you've almost got to everything we dreamt of. But you let go of the presence of God, which is the key to living life fully. That was the story of the nation of Israel, that presence trumps progress, but more than that, presence leads to progress. God said, I'm going to give you a cloud by day, a fire by night. These are manifestations of my presence. And if you stay close to my presence, it will lead you to abundance. It will lead you to the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. We're at a moment where we idolize progress. We've let go of presence. And are we living life fully? And the answer is, we're really struggling. Listen to these words, this challenge from Revelation chapter 2. This is Jesus speaking a message to the church in Ephesus, um, to the Apostle John, who's writing this from the island of Patmos. Hopefully it will come up on the screen. My click is not working, so I'm handing it over to you guys. I trust you at the back. I believe in you. Um, So listen to these words, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus says this, he says, I hold this against you. Now, the context of the whole letter, by the way, Jesus has been celebrating the incredible things that are happening in the church in Ephesus. And then you have this kind of pivot point in the letter and he says, but uh, yet I hold this one thing against you. All the things you're doing incredibly well, this is the one thing you've let go of. And it's a pretty big thing. You've forsaken your first love. Now, the word forsaken literally means to leave behind. Now, here's a sort of nerdy fact. that The church in Ephesus was the church that Mary, the mother of Jesus, attended. So she ends up um, as part of the congregation in Ephesus. Now, just imagine this then, celebrating Christmas you know, year by year with Mary in the congregation. I mean, that's got to have been epic, right? You've got the nativity play with the donkey, and then it's like, oh, there's, there's, there's you, Mary, that's fun. And imagine the cow was like, Mary, did you know? Serious question, did you know? That your baby boy would one day... I mean, it would just been incredible, right? Celebrating Christmas with Mary front row in the congregation. Now, with that in mind then, Mary's part of the church in Ephesus. This letter's written to the church in, in Ephesus. And, and the message is you've basically left behind Jesus. You've left behind your first love. Now, I wonder if that would have stirred up memories um, for Mary. 
Because there is a story in the Gospels of Mary leaving behind Jesus. We're going to read it together. This is Luke chapter 2. So it says this, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Now, I've had some parenting fails in lockdown, I'm just going to be really honest about it. Lost my rag, not had enough patience with the kids whilst homeschooling, all of that kind of stuff. But I've never lost a child for a full day, right? I, I've had some bad moments, but I've never lost a child for a full day. We have a 12-year-old. I've lost him for minutes, not a full day, right? It, it gets worse. Let's, let's keep reading. Um, they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they, they found him. Now, for any mums in the room, you can imagine the panic. I'm sure some of you have had it, or, or, or dads or carers, like when you're in the supermarket and for like two seconds, one of your kids is out of view and you're like, oh my goodness, and like, kind of raw panic takes over. Imagine as a mum experiencing three days where you don't know where your child is. Imagine the desperation. That's kind of something that's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. Now listen to the key verse in that passage, verse 44, thinking he was in their company. So they've traveled on and essentially they've just presumed Jesus is with us, right? Like how many of us go through life with this big presumption that surely Jesus is with us, right? Like surely I'm the one in the lead and Jesus is the one following behind. Isn't that the way we're meant to live out our faith that I'm essentially the rabbi and Jesus is my disciple um, and, and he's following in my company. Or have I got that the wrong way around? Um, and then there's these moments where you realize I've lost the sense of God's presence. Like I've lost the nearness that used to mark out my spiritual life, used to mark out my discipleship with Jesus. I've been continuing in this direction and I just presumed he was in my company. And now this kind of realization and it hits like a ton of bricks. Like, where's God? And the sense of presence that used to be such a key part of my walk with Jesus, anyone experienced that moment? Now, when you experience that moment, what, what's the natural cry of your heart? It's like, uh, uh, like, help, like, God, come, God, rescue me. It's, it's a cry deep from our heart. God, would you step in? Would your presence be made known? Let me give you um, an example that's similar to that then. So I've got three kids um, Ben's Josh Olive and our youngest is eight and there's this kind of routine this happens every single night you know so we put Olive to bed she falls to sleep and then about three in the morning and I just want to say that again so you really grab hold of that three in the morning I begin to hear this voice it goes something like this daddy I'm like, oh no daddy and she's persistent so she's just going to keep them going until I respond it's never mummy I haven't, I haven't figured that out that's a conversation for me and be later but it's always like daddy and eventually I'll wake up I'll walk through to her room and I'll say Olive it's bedtime go to sleep that's a joke by the way I don't do that always creates this nervous response like he's hardcore like wow that really is an old school form of parenting you know yeah, anyway, no, I don't do that. So what I actually do is, is, is I go into her room, I give her a cuddle, 
I lie down next to her. We both fall asleep and then we wake up in the morning, right? So it's, it's a moment of nearness where she knows my presence is incredibly close. We both fall asleep and then we wake up together later. Now, why does she call me in the first place? And it's because she's young and she's scared of the dark. Um, now, if you look at this next slide, hopefully this will make sense and you might need to go back to being a child yourself, remembering those moments where you were scared of the dark. Why are kids scared of the dark? And the answer is compare daytime with nighttime. Let's start with daytime. During the daytime, you are always, as a child in the company of others. It's because of dependency levels, right? That you are always around parents, carers, teachers, siblings. You're always in the company of others. But then there's that moment where parents or whoever takes you to bed and they turn off the light and for the first time in 12 hours, you're alone. So for a kid, that, that's a, a big moment, always in the company of others, and suddenly you're alone. Now, because of daylight during the day, you can always see what's in your surroundings. That's the beauty of daytime, but when the light switch goes off, you can't really see. And suddenly you're like, I wonder what's under my bed. I can't see. Maybe there's a monster there. And that shadowy figure in the corner, is that my teddy bear or is it a goblin? And, and you're not fully sure. So this fear of one, the unknown, and two, being alone, begin to grab hold of you. Now, as adults, we grow out of the fear of the dark, but we never actually grow out of the fear of being alone and experiencing the unknown. We actually place that on a new enemy, which is death, the ultimate moment we face alone and the ultimate un. Known. And the fear of death or the fear of the unknown, being alone, they grab hold of us, not just as kids, but as adults, and they begin to energize fear throughout our lives, right? So what happens when we call to God like, Daddy, essentially? This is the cry consistently of the, the psalmist. This is how Jesus taught his followers to pray, by the way, when he said, Our Father in heaven, the Aramaic is Abba, which isn't a reverent term of, like, uh, term of father. It's, it's a term of intimacy that a kid would use of their dad. So like, essentially, daddy is probably a closer translation. That cry does something. Daddy, what, what does it do? Well, let me borrow the language of, of Psalm 40. Psalm 40 basically says that God hears the cries of his children and that when we find ourselves in a pit, when we're lost, we've lost the sense of God's presence in our life and we feel disorientation, when we cry, he hears our cries, he lifts us from the pit, the mud and the mire, he sets our feet on a solid rock and he puts a new song in our heart. So this is my experience throughout my Christian life, but it's the testimony of the saints throughout church history and in the scriptures that when we cry out to our Father in heaven, before he rescues us from the pit, he embraces us in the pit, right? Before he rescues us from it, he embraces us in it. So the answer to the cry, Daddy, is that before clarity comes, in other words, daylight, the dawn, before clarity comes, his company arrives and he blesses us with his presence. And this is why when you talk to people who are following Jesus through struggles and suffering, their testimony will be life sucks, but God is good. And there's moments where I taste his nearness and it changes everything, right? 
Listen to these words. This is a quote. Faith is the bird that feels the light and sings when the dawn is still dark. Now, a good mate of mine, Pete Gregg, wrote a blog post unpacking this quote. So let me read you his blog post. He says, Most mornings I have the window wide to welcome the wild ecstatic hallelujah at the start of each new day. The song thrush first, actually a while before any light at all appears in the night sky. But then the hidden orchestra strikes up. Blackbird crescendoing with wren, robin riffing with chaffinch. Can you tell he doesn't live in London, by the way? Uh, Anyway, let's keep going. Birds sing before sunrise, I'm told, because they've been woken by the cold and it's not yet light enough to hunt for food or a mate. They sing, notice this, they sing when they are constrained, cold and desperate in anticipation rather than celebration. Once satiated, they're silent. We are communicants in this mystery, participants in this moment when the sweetest, most startling hallelujah arises. Contrary to anything we ever expected, in the darkness preceding the dawn, in the shivers that yearn for a sunrise, the hunger before the feast. So birds sing before the dawn. When they are cold and they're desperate, essentially crying out, Daddy! And their song awakens the dawn. That's the lesson for us. It's the presence of God that meets with us in the moment of struggle that awakens the dawn. This is why Moses could say in the passage, like, no, we need your presence. I would rather be in the wilderness with the tangible sense of your presence than for all my dreams to come to pass and find I'm living without your presence because your presence is everything. It's your presence that awakens the dawn. Um, I want to give you just one of my favourite bits of art, if this could come up on the screen. I'm a big Charlie Mackesy fan, and obviously his recent book has exploded, but this is perhaps one of his most famous pieces of work. It's a picture of the prodigal daughter. It's in a series of of pictures, one of them being obviously the prodigal son. Um, But this is almost Charlie trying to capture his experience of the grace of God. Now just look at that embrace like the sense of being held secure, like a daughter in the arms of a father, like everything's gonna be okay in this embrace, this moment of an encounter with the presence of God that awakens the dawn. Don't you long for that? A long for a greater measure, sense of God's presence in your life. Anyway, I I love Charlie Mack's work. I've always wanted to own my own piece of of his artwork. And I had that opportunity recently. I want to tell you the story. So there was a lady who's part of KXC, the the church that I'm in charge of. And she was making a film. Um, and Charlie Mack was working on the film. Charlie Mack was doing some sketches to create a mood board for, for some key moments in this film. Now, one of the scenes in the film was a girl sort of rocking into church like Sunday morning after a big night out and not in a good state. And as she stumbles into the back of this church, there's someone at the front preaching a sermon on the theme of death. And basically, my friend said, look, for this film, could you write a seven-minute sermon on the theme of death? Now, that requires a miracle, because I I never do a seven-minute sermon. Like, 27, 37 maybe, but seven, not a chance. But I said, look, I'll give it a go. So I wrote this kind of seven-minute sermon on death for this film. Let me just read you the email exchange I, I had with her. 
So I'd mentioned one of the things I loved about her and Charlie Mack was their disdain for religiosity and their deep curiosity about the grace of God. So she says this, you mentioned before that I have a disdain for religiosity and you're right. I hope to somehow serve the film I'm making by identifying what religiosity looks like and in contrast and more importantly, what an expression of God can look like, something more humble, honest, grace-filled, inclusive and encouraging. The church scene itself will be very short. A female character after a massive regrettable drug-fueled rave in a forest will stumble in the back of church out of curiosity and catch the end of a sermon, which she surprisingly soothed and inspired by. I want people to also be soothed by the snippet, no pressure. It's an old echoey church with the ornate velvety type offering bags with the wooden handles. It gets passed to her and she pukes in it. So, so that's the scene, right? And I think even the scene stirs up something within. There's a Pharisee within all of us, right? So some of us kind of hear that kind of setup, and and some might think, well, does she deserve like that moment of extravagant grace? And if if you think that maybe, you know, Jesus shouldn't respond in that kind of encounter with just like unbelievable grace, if you think he shouldn't, well, you might be right, but if you think that he wouldn't, you're entirely wrong. Because if someone was to stumble into the house of God, the presence of God, if you read the Gospels, you would have to conclude that their first encounter would be grace. That God's company, his presence would be the gift that leads them towards rescue, right? Um, so she basically said, after I'd written this, this um, seven-minute sermon, she said, I've got a gift for you. Because for that scene when this lady walks into the back of church, Charlie Mack did a, a piece of art. So the next slide will appear. And this is a piece of artwork that, that sits in our living room. Um, and I wanted to read you what she said to me in the email where she gave me this gift. She says this, I was there when Charlie drew this after we talked about the scene. His interpretation looks to me a lot like someone leaning on the balcony at the top of the Ethiopian church space that KXC uses, which is apt because the drawing was meant to serve as a representation of your audience, who you write and preach for, those who come to church spiritually almost crawling on their hands and knees for one last shot on 1% battery to connect with God, their lifestyle and hearts and build genuine community. Like we're living in a moment of incredible fragility. People more aware of their brokenness than perhaps ever before. People are mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted operating on 1% battery. Every time I preach and come here to St. Saviour's or, or to KXC, as I leave the house, I look at this piece of art and just wonder, Will that girl be present in the congregation? Will there be someone in the congregation who's there for the first time, sort of rocking up, feeling nervous energy? Am I going to be judged? Because I'm not sure about my state externally, internally. But what if they heard a message? And what if they experienced something in the family that was marked out by the grace of God? and the presence of God. And what if in this moment of 1% battery, their recharge was an embrace with God Almighty and his unconditional love? So whenever I'm preaching, it's like, Lord, that person might be in the room. Help me communicate your 
extravagant grace. Let me close with our second reading then. The words from John 15, verse five. Jesus says, and in many ways, what Jesus is communicating here is the fulfillment of this conversation between God and Moses, where Moses says, it's your presence that leads us to abundance. Like, we long for your presence. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you remain, dwell, live, Abide, depending on your translation. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But notice this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Like if you want to experience abundance, like the promised land in all its fullness, here's the key, is host the presence of God. Abide in the presence of God because his presence awakens the dawn. Why don't we pray? Should we stand together? And you do whatever you feel comfortable doing. This would be my encouragement. Maybe just to hold your hands out in a simple posture of receiving. There's no magic to this. This isn't sort of a formula. But it is a posture we see throughout scripture of people doing something externally to enable them to do something internally, which is to say, God, I'm here for you. Jesus said, how much more will the Father give the Spirit, in other words, the presence of God, to those that ask? So that's all we're gonna do now. With arms open like a child, ready to receive a gift, we're gonna ask, Father, would you pour out your Spirit Some of us feel lost right now and can more than relate to the story of Mary. I just presumed you were in my company. And there have been moments in the last two years where we've been aware, gosh, your presence feels distant and therefore the cry of our hearts is, Daddy, Father, would you come close? Holy Spirit, come. Lord, we thank you that you've done everything necessary to overcome every single obstacle to us encountering your presence. You've overcome our sin and our shame through the cross. You've overcome darkness. You've overcome evil. Everything necessary, every obstacle you've overcome so that we can come into your throne room, your presence, and experience your peace. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, I pray that for for some in the room that feel like this is a moment of darkness, not daytime, that your presence would awaken the dawn, that something of your embrace and encounter with your love and grace in this moment would somehow bring about a shift, a turning point, 
that leads to a deeper unfolding of your purposes. I pray that this cry in the night would be like a moment where you lift people from the mud and the mire and you put their feet on solid rock and you put a new song in their heart, a hymn of praise to you. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. Maybe that first Charlie Mack painting you can have in mind, the prodigal daughter or the prodigal son. If you don't know the story, it's, it's a beautiful story about God and humanity. The hinge point is the return of the son where they experience not judgment but mercy and then the story ends with a banquet at the father's house like a feast like a barbecue to end all barbecues and it's a picture of the extravagance of God his character and his nature when we celebrate the Eucharist it's a celebration of the character of God the lengths he would go to to embrace and welcome home lost sons and daughters. It reminds us of his death so that there could be an outpouring of his grace and love. So we're going to use a little bit of liturgy that just reminds us of what this meal is all about. It reminds us of the story that marks out our faith, a story of reckless love and grace. So if the liturgy could appear on the screen, we'll say it together. I'm going to say the bits in yellow. We all respond with the words in white. If you're watching this at home on the Zoom, then hopefully you can join along with us. The Lord is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to praise you, Father, Lord of all creation. In your love, you made us for yourself. When we turned away, you didn't reject us, but came to meet us in your Son. You embraced us as your children and welcomed us to sit and eat with you. In Christ, you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. He opened his arms of love upon the cross and made for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. On the night that he was betrayed at supper with his friends, he took bread. He gave you thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His body is the bread of life. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His blood is shed for all. 
as we proclaim his death and celebrate his rising in glory. Send your Holy Spirit that this bread and this wine may be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. As we eat and drink these holy gifts, make us one in Christ, our risen Lord. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you this sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the eternal song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of